0: Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learned with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. Well, this is an episode I've wanted to do for some time, ever since I first learned that one of the great free speech institutions, FIRE, was changing its name from Foundation for Individual Rights in Education to Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression but it's more than a name change as we're going to hear and really speaks to the widening concern many of you and and certainly those of us at donors trust see in the need to defend and promote free speech and free expression so today i'm very excited to be joined not by one but three friends from fire who will talk to us about this shift in strategy why it's needed some of the continued college-based work that they are still doing, as well as just what the broader landscape of free speech looks like at the moment. I think you're going to come away excited about the possibilities of future success in this arena, uh, certainly with a better understanding of FIRE's work, as well as a few other groups out there that are good complements to what FIRE is doing to protect the First Amendment. So joining me today, we have FIRE's President and CEO, Greg Lukianoff. We also have FIRE's Chief Operating Officer, Alicia Glennon, and its Executive Vice President, Nico Perino. So let's start with the big shift. Uh, doing a name change is not done very often. It carries some risk with it. Fortunately, for, for slow people like me, the acronym stayed the same, but you're now the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Expression rather than in Education. So Greg, tell us about this big move and, and what it really means for the organization.
1: Well, uh, you know, FIRE was founded in 99, and I joined as legal director back in 2001, and I became president in 2005. And almost that whole time, people were coming to us saying that they think um, we're the real deal on free speech and we should expand beyond campus. And my answer was always, no, campuses are too important. They are central for the fight for free speech in the United States. They're central for the fight for free speech globally, even. Um, And so we, we really needed to concentrate on those. However... I, I always left out the possibility that if we got enough coverage on campus, if we, if we could actually start to make sure that we had campus pretty well covered, then um, we would consider moving uh, you know, beyond campus. And in 2019, we got a key factor that I, that I was uh, waiting to get. We finally got a research department of some, uh, s- some amount of heft and, and size, and we were able to start doing a rigorous ranking of how good schools are for freedom of speech. Um, and once we had that, I was like, okay, I think we, and, uh, and we're doing more litigation on campus. I kind of felt like, okay, we might be able to consider this. So maybe at our 25th anniversary in 2024. The decisive thing, though, about the, t- the precise timing was 2020 was the worst year for freedom of speech, I had seen in the United States in my lifetime, um, and I started talking to um, various donors and friends. I t- started talking to people within FIRE, um, and we'd always felt called—you uh, know—at some point we'd be called to sort of stand up for free speech nationally. Um, and we came up with a, a like a, a really ambitious plan, and we, we announced our our change to the Foundation for Individual Rights uh, and and Expression uh, on June 6, uh, and it's been a, a whirlwind ever since.
0: So Nico. You're the comms guy. You're a storyteller. How? Uh, tell me a story of what this looks like now. What, what are some of the new battles that you take on because of this expansion?
2: Yeah, well, as Greg pointed out, our initial goal here was to you know expand our research off campus, expand our litigation off campus, and really make the argument in the court of public opinion for why free speech, the First Amendment, and a culture of free expression is important. We just recently filed one of our first off-campus lawsuits, which involves Eugene Volok, who is a very famous well-known first amendment professor and lawyer at ucla um, challenging a law in new york state that places burdens on uh, social media companies requires them to have policies in place uh, around hate speech you'll recall that back in may there was that tragic shooting in buffalo in the supermarket there and afterwards Uh, officials in New York were thinking of ways to try and avoid that. And as often happens surrounding tragedy, um, they they infringe on civil liberties in doing so. So they passed a law that said social media networks, it's titled Social Media Networks, Hateful Conduct Prohibited. And it forces social media companies or even blogs, uh, anyone with an online presence that allows people to engage with them, uh, to respond to online expression that could vilify, humiliate, or incite violence based on protected protected classes, and it creates ways or mandates ways in which visitors to some of these sites, like like Eugene Volokh's blog, um, to complain about the hateful content. Um, you know, New York law doesn't define what vilify, what humiliate, or what incite means, um, and, you know, it could be anything from an atheist post-vilifying people of faith to, you know, John Oliver humiliating British people who criticize the monarchy. You know, this is the sort of law that burdened speech is unconstitutional and that we're going to challenge as part of our off-campus admission. But, But, you know, we go beyond that, too. We're we're putting out advertisements on television and billboards in 20 cities across the country, making the case for freedom of expression. You know, we've got one television ad that features K.J. Lynam, who's a student at Emerson College, who was punished by the president at Emerson College and the administration there for passing out stickers critical of the Chinese Communist Party. The president of the university actually issued an email uh, saying that the student group, in this case TPUSA, handing out China kinda sus stickers uh, was an example of anti-Asian bigotry and hate. And the kicker here, of course, is KJ herself is Asian. So, you know, we're we're trying to tell these stories from across the political and ideological spectrum and and make people aware that, you know, free speech is all of our rights. We've got an ad with Ice T, the rapper. Uh, and the longtime actor on Law & Order uh, that we put out on the season premiere of Law and & Order. And we've been doing a lot in the past six months. Uh, you, you spoke to how name changes don't happen all that time. I think there was one person who told us they couldn't remember a time that a nonprofit was you know, pursuing something quite like this before. So we have our work for, cut out for us and have been very proud by how much we've been able to accomplish in such a short time.
0: Yeah, I've, I've heard... Ads for fire on podcasts well outside the scope of the conservative libertarian world, uh, which which is always exciting to, to hear. Now, uh, as Nico suggested, this is a big, ambitious thing. Alicia, you are partially tasked with raising the money for this, which is a big deal. Talk to us briefly, because I, I can't remember if Greg mentioned the expansion from a dollar standpoint. And then I'm really curious, what's the reaction been among your supporters, among the media, among folks out there to taking on this expanded scope?
3: Honestly, it's been really heartwarming, the reception that we've gotten since June 6. There's always some anxiety that comes along with changes. And this is expensive. You know, what we're trying to do, the gap we're trying to fill, it's big. And so we've embarked on a campaign to raise $75 million over three years. To date, uh, we've raised $43 million of that $75 million, and we're six months into it. So I'm feeling really positive. I think that's a a reflection on a couple things. One, um, you know, our mandate's bigger. Maybe people who didn't care uh, a lot about what was happening on campus really care about free speech at large in our country. So it gave them a reason to finally say, yeah, sign me up. Um, it's also because the types of cases we're taking on are more relevant to more people. And free speech is in the center of a culture war right now. I think people really recognize that if we lose this, we've lost the whole ball ballgame. Um, and there's demand for this work. I mean, I don't think it would be a surprise to, you know, your, your listeners that there's not you know, before June sixth, there wasn't a nonpartisan, principled defender of free speech in our country. Um, a lot of institutions that we used to rely on to do that are no longer doing that work. Um, so while I was a little bit nervous uh, to take on a seventy-five million dollar expansion, uh, soon after that, I was a little—I was relieved to see people stand up and say, "I want to be part of that." Uh, we've brought on sixty-seven. Hundred new members to fire. A member is someone who donates $25. Um, and we don't have cards yet, but maybe someday we will. And so the reaction from our current donors, I will say the majority of them are very happy. We had a bunch of responses saying, finally, or I've been asking you to do this for so long. We also had some who are more apprehensive because they know that it's risky to take on more, and they loved us, and they just want to make sure that we're being smart. But we have put together I, what I think is a, uh, a great strategic plan and to show our work, to show how we're going to get there. And we've also been able to, through our actions, show people that we're not abandoning the campus world. If anything, we're ramping up our work there too. So for those that were, you know, worried that, oh, well, will this take time away from your campus stuff, and we've re- reassured them, no. But then over the past six months, we've also showed them, no.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about the campus stuff in a minute. I did have one question though, Would that $75 million, how, how does that break up between some of the the advertisement and stuff that Nico was talking about to the litigation, to just growing staff? What How does that, where does that money go?
3: So the easiest, uh, simplest breakdown is, about $50 million is going into acquisition, communications, mobilization, (laughs) building the movement. And so we have a goal to get to 1 million followers. Um, And that's a very integral part of this plan because these people will help us accomplish our mission because we're gonna put them to work. So we're investing a big chunk of that 75 million into uh, making sure that more Americans know about fire and we become a household name. The, the other 25 is to build up our capabilities, to build up our research and think tank, think tank capabilities. But most of that is going into building a first class, First Amendment litigation team. So I think the 50 25 is the easiest way um, to explain that breakdown.
1: And I really wanted to stress the um, the building of that million-person free speech army. um, This is the only way we're gonna we're gonna be relevant because what what we're trying to do is basically you know if they're gonna be Twitter mobs against freedom of speech, our our research shows that there are plenty of people left and right who are still really great on freedom of speech, Um, particularly you know left-leaning people over 45 um, as they get older uh, they get better on it. Um, Left-leaning people under 30. uh uh, just haven't been taught that much about free speech and they hate hate cancel culture that that's incredibly clear uh the between 30 and, and, and 45 on the left might be a lost cause um but but uh but basically, like, what you need is when, you know, we're calling out um, behavior that isn't uh, necessarily something that, that, is const- uh, that is more about free speech culture. Like when P- PayPal started saying, like, we're not going to work with um, organizations that we don't like. We wouldn't work with – when they said they wouldn't work with the free speech union uh, in, in, in the U.K. and started passing all of these things that allowed them, you know, the, the ability to just pick and choose whoever they worked with, we knew we couldn't win that in court. Um, But one of the things that helped us um, succeed in in getting the word out about that was the fact that we've already uh, greatly grown our email lists. Our our goal for this past year was to uh, raise about a quarter million more uh, emails. We've blown past that already, even before the end of the year. Our goal on TikTok was to get, um, I think, 8,000 people by the end of the year. I think we're closer to 25,000.
2: No, we're at 45,000.
1: We're 45,000? Wow, I, I... wow, we're, 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 doing good there. So, but, but basically you can't be, um, the kind of successful national advocacy organization if it's just you, you know, sending the social media letters, calling people out. You gotta have that a thousand people behind you.
2: Yeah. It's like, it's like you saw earlier this year, right? When there was that cancel Chappelle campaign, everyone was trying to get Netflix to take down Dave Chappelle's special, you know, to erase this, this, this work of art, you know, stand-up comedy is, a, is an art form. Um, but where were the free speech advocates, right? Where was the tentpole organization that was going to organize people and say, no, in America, we don't censor art. We don't censor comedians. And so we're trying to be that organization that folks can rally around, that can call, um, call these institutions out to support free expression, to fight illiberal demands for censorship. And Greg said, yeah, I mean, we're building that million-person army. We grew our email list from something like 35 thousand uh subscribers in october or november of last year too i'm just looking at our uh metrics dashboard right now 283,000 people uh as of the end of november so we're making some efforts there and yes some of the money that alicia was talking about is going into those efforts
0: that's great but you haven't been abandoned the college efforts still critical to the to the mission and as Central. you know a lot of people's free speech Uh, beliefs can either go go the right way or the wrong way in in those formative college years you have greg you alluded earlier to your college free speech rankings which i think a lot of people increasingly look to and talk about i know i do uh looking at more than 200 colleges and universities from from university of chicago at the top to Columbia with its appalling rating down at the bottom. Dead
1: last. And that was a surprise to me, too. Penn coming in second to last, not a surprise. I actually thought, if anything, maybe they should have been dead last. Uh, But Columbia coming in last, I was not actually expecting.
0: And like a distant last, too. So so what do these most recent rankings tell you about the state of free speech on campus?
1: Oh, man. Um, Some of the scariest stuff is seeing the acceptability of violence um, in response to freedom of speech. Um, you know it, the correct answer is how acceptable um, is viol- is a violent response to freedom of speech or, or violence to suppress speech the answer should be never <laughs> and it's it's amazing how uh, at different schools how few people actually choose that answer one of the weirder things we found was that the the highest acceptance of violence to suppress free speech or shouting down or blocking doors was actually at what used to be predominantly uh, women's colleges um, and, and actually at, uh, which we found kind of fascinating um, and what I love about the rankings is people have been asking me to do the rankings, asking me at Fire uh, for, forever to, to do, and I'm like, no. If we're going to do it, it has to be rigorous. It has to um, have you know multiple factors. It has to include their speech code um, and. Ideally, it would involve actually asking students and faculty at those schools what the environment's like. And thanks to an organization called College Pulse, we're now able to we're now able to do that um, and actually talk to students directly about, like, can you actually have a good conversation at your school? Can you talk about taboo topics? Um, so we found out a lot of good and a lot of bad uh, f- from those. We're only doing 200 schools so far just because it's a little expensive, like, per, per school. My goal would be to get to maybe 500, 600 at some point. Um, I would even love to collect Collaborate uh, with some of the existing rating um, companies. Uh, Wall Street Journal is looking into this. Certainly, if U.S. News wanted to give us a call, um, it's the most rigorous study. And I want to be clear: th- these these are every year. Every year we've done this, they're the largest studies that have ever been done of student attitudes about free speech. Uh, and and I mean every year, as in when we first did this, we only had 50 schools. Now we have 200. We're doing 250 next year. So next year's one is going to be the biggest uh, survey of, of free speech attitudes ever ever done. And we, we and I think this is one of the ways you actually promote change in, in, in higher ed.
2: Yeah, I mean, the latest survey, Greg, right, has 45,000 student voices incorporated into it, which is quite impressive. And it allows you to look at the state of free expression on college campuses, not just on the campus level, but also in the aggregate level. For example, you find that majorities on campus say that speakers with non-liberal viewpoints should not be allowed. To speak on campus you know it says that the three most a lot of it's
1: really depressing <laughs> yes
2: you know the, th- the three different most difficult topics to discuss on campus aren't going to be a surprise to folks you know abortion racial inequality and COVID-19 vaccine mandates you know cons- we find that conservative students are most likely to feel they can't express their opinions freely with 42 percent reporting they often feel uncomfortable free- speaking freely on campus compared to just 13 percent of liberal students and one of the things that's striking to me about the rankings uh, and we and we you know we put together this rigorous methodology we don't know how it's going to turn out but the schools that are at the top are often the schools that have leadership that is vocally in support of free expression there's no surprise that university of chicago comes in at top purdue as well has done orientation programming in support of free expression and then you see the schools are at the bottom like columbia university university of pennsylvania these are schools that are regularly in the headlines for censorship so it just you know it's amazing how it ends up shaking out
3: I think that's actually a really relevant point to these listeners, because for donors that are looking to support the colleges that they care about the most, maybe where their kids went or or going or maybe where they went, what we like to say is like, you actually can be influential leadership matters, who's on the board of trustees matters. And so if you have a seat at the table, you can make a difference and fire can work with you too to do that. So not all hope is lost, right? Like we there are there are ways to make a difference. And so I like to remind people of that because it can often feel when you're doing this work or you're reading the news like, oh man, things have gone so off the rails, it's not worth it. But we see improvements happening when those of us who care put our heads together and work with the school and put pressure on a school, even it's positive pressure on the school to do what's right for free students. And
2: we And we do hear back from these schools. I mean, this yeah. is putting pressure on them. DePauw University in uh, Indiana was at the bottom of the rankings in the previous year. And they were really concerned about that. And the president of the university reached out. They uh, started putting in place some free expression initiatives. And they're not at the bottom of the rankings this year, uh, yeah. which is which is great to hear. And today, just today, I won't name the school, but a, a director of media relations at a, a top Ivy League school reached out to us concerned about... Um, that school's ranking, wanting to learn more about that, so we sent them along an individualized report. So they're 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 taking notice.
1: Probably the the, the coolest thing to come out of this last one in terms of responsiveness was um, uh, Johns Hopkins. Uh, Johns Hopkins, very also much uh, to my surprise, because it's it's like a, you know America's first um, sort of modern research university and intends to you know produces some really high quality science. They were they were ranked at 193, also a surprise to me. And to, to the credit of Pref, uh, President Daniels at um, uh, uh, at Hopkins, they invited me immediately to like to come speak to their next board meeting. So I got to talk to their whole board of directors, talk about the data. Um, so it seemed like there are some schools that would like to make names for themselves as being unusually good uh, for freedom of speech, but you know. Uh, I, I'm also uh, trying to explain, um, you know, how bad it's actually gotten because we, you, because I'm working on a book called "Canceling of the American Mind" as a follow-up to my my book with Jonathan Haidt, "Coddling of an American of the American Mind," and as I want to really light a fire, <laughs> so to speak, um, un, un, under people. Um, uh, uh to fight for freedom of speech uh, particularly on campus because when you start looking at the numbers of the professors who have been canceled since 2014 or when, when we see like cancel culture really getting to full gear, um, there's no meaningful comparison to it outside of like the you know McCarthyism and, and the 1930s like it, it, it's it's really stunning. so we're gonna try to put that entire argument. it's going to be me and firefellow uh, Ricky Schlot uh, and it's supposed to come out next fall. Uh, but really, you know, also to repudiate people who, who unbelievably keep on trying to say um, cancel culture isn't even real. And I'm always like, no, it's not just real. It, it's demonstrable and it's historic.
0: So you aren't monolithic. You, you mentioned a new book coming out to the co- sequel to The Coddling of the American Mind. You obviously are doing litigation and have been for a long time, although I was interested to read. You didn't really start with litigation. That even came up. Later. So you've always been invested in a lot of things. You even have produced movies uh, like uh, Can We Take a Joke? Does that variety of work work? It seems like a lot. So do you, do you run the risk of spreading too thin or, or does it actually layer onto itself to get to the get to the goal
1: oh it absolutely layers on top of itself I mean w- one thing that I, I have to sometimes remind because uh, there was a point at which you know uh, w- I think we were we we're a little too lawyer heavy to be honest and when I uh, and since the original vision of fire was to be uh, almost as much of a comms operation to call schools out and make them act better with the threat of, of, of publicity um, that uh, I was always a big believer in being creative about how you reach new people um, and it's one of the things I love about FIRE, and I think that makes us uniquely effective, um, is that we will always be like, what audience have we not yet uh, you know, reached? I remember actually telling Nico back when he was my assistant back in 2011, I was like, I, I want to write a book about psychology and parenting um, that's also about freedom of speech. And, you know, and eight, eight, you know, six years later, I, I started working on, on one with, with John Haidt the, um, because really not that many people wake up in the morning and say, you know what I care about? I care about free speech, and I especially care about free speech on campus. So I jokingly say, we have to trick them into learning about our issues. So uh, make the point that in Can We Take a Joke, that this has an effect on comedy, um, that this is going to destroy comedy. And the only problem with Can We Take a Joke is it came out in 2015, long before people were aware of how bad it had gotten. So we're way too ahead of the time. Uh, Mighty Ira award-winning documentary that was the passion project of nico right here um like that that was a way to reach older liberals to say it's like look isn't this like an amazing isn't ira glasser a great model of what you know uh, what older liberals used to believe in um we're coming out with a documentary about coddling the american mind that's going to focus more on the mental health aspect making the point that um to try to reach people who care about psychology saying that the same habits that are making these kids censors are also making them miserable um so i think that being creative and nimble is one of the reasons why we have a, a uniquely effective and um and varied reach
0: now nico you know another one of those things to layer on to all of that is the podcast that you lead uh, the so to speak podcast And so, from that perch, you're in an interesting position, similar to what I am, where you get to talk to a lot of groups, you highlight a lot of work going on. I'm interested from you, and and also uh, Greg and and Alicia, from you as well. What are what trends are you seeing? What groups are out there in this never-ending free speech fight that are really doing some good work at at moving the ball forward?
2: Yeah, well, I've been doing the podcast since 2016. At this point, it's really hard to believe we've done 177 episodes, and we've. We've covered a lot of free speech topics, some of them broad, some of them very narrow. I did an episode with the authorized biographer of George Orwell, for example, focusing on George Orwell's philosophy and thoughts surrounding free expression in, in, in his works. I receive a lot of listener feedback when I do the podcast. And over the years, the one thing that listeners always want to hear more and more about is censorship on social media. Uh, it's the thing they're most concerned about, and it makes sense, Right. It, you know, most people are on social media. If they're speaking out and they have their posts taken down, that's, you know, their their interaction with, with free expression. Uh, and Fire has been having a lot of, you know, talking a lot about social media and big tech at, since our expansion. We did a whole campaign surrounding PayPal. Greg was mentioning this earlier. PayPal's efforts to fine users $2,500 uh, if they... Uh, uh, In the sole
1: discretion of PayPal,
2: misinform. <laughs> yeah, misinformation. Right. So you're and saying they, you're
1: going to steal money if you don't? Oh goodness! <laughs> they,
2: they quickly rolled that back. Uh, we put together a little campaign on that, and they uh, rolled that back. But then we've also, um, you know, done campaigns and open letters to Elon Musk about about Twitter. But there are a lot of. I mean, I have all the different free speech groups on the podcast. You know, I've I've had Institute for Free Speech. Uh, you know, I've had scholars from Mercatus
3: on. Alumni Free Speech Alliance. They're, oh, right, they're yeah. They're relatively new. They're a very strong partner of ours. We work hand-in-hand. Hand. Um, and what they're doing is they're helping uh, alumni colleges get together, and they're providing them the resources that they need to have a website for their for a free speech group at their school to get their 501c3 status. And they're giving them the tools to effectively start a teeny nonprofit focused on alumni who care about free speech? Getting their schools to be better for free speech. Mm-hmm. So we work hand in hand with them, and they've been a great partner to us this year for sure.
1: Yeah, and also groups like older groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation and IJ. You know, we're always trying to learn from them as well and collaborate on um, issues when when they intersect.
3: And I mean, honestly, there are some state chapters of the ACLU that will partner with us on briefs. Um, you know, when it makes sense, and so. We'll welcome allies, you know, if it's going to help us do yeah. our mission. Yeah, uh, we'll what welcome. is that
1: Frederick Douglass quote? It's like, I'll, I'll I'll work with anybody to do good, and no one to do evil.
0: Yeah, uh, it's good that the landscape continues to expand with with new groups. Well. Well, let's close with this. You know, Greg, I I think I've heard in the past that you've called yourself a Democrat. Nico, you used to be at IJ. So that kind of tips your hand towards a more libertarian persuasion, perhaps. And and Alicia, I actually know you best of the three of these. And I have no idea where your political (laughs) leanings lie. (laughs) Uh, You know, free speech seems like something that should cut across political and ideological lines. Do you all still think that's true? And if it's not, how do we go about making it more true?
1: Our data indicates it is true, um, and that the the problem with free speech on the left uh, does tend to be, um, you know, p- p- the millennials, um, a, lot, a lot of people are currently in power, and particularly those who are, you know, upper SES um, and uh, going to elite schools. We shouldn't give up hope on the left, and we can't give up hope on the left, because if basically, like, if we just decided we're just going to try to appeal to conservatives because there's enough out there who will join us uh, caring about freedom of speech, Um, we would turn free speech itself into a strictly partisan issue, and therefore it would be, you know, Branded essentially, it would be like the Second Amendment, but we don't have to do that because there really are great people still, uh, you know, still on the left out there. Nadine Strawson, formerly president of the ACLU, has become a FIRE fellow, uh, a FIRE senior fellow in the past couple of years. Um, so we have to build bridges on this, and and no matter what, I think the best way you do it is do exactly what we've always done. We, um, if if you're on the right, left, or none of the above, you get in trouble for your free speech. We will help you, you no know, if, ands, or buts.
3: Nico, did you want to give a preview of a op-ed you have coming up? I <laughs> you have a
2: lot to say about this. <laughs> yeah, what we need are principled free speech advocates, uh, You know, people who are going to defend freedom of expression regardless of whether this, the expression that needs defending offends them. Uh, there's this kind of trend uh, in the free speech advocacy world where people will do a lot of throat clearing, a lot of genuflecting before other values before they get to the free speech defense. Or they'll say, we defend free speech, but... I like to call these people buttheads, Um, you know. We need principled advocates, and you sometimes see on the right that they're willing to use the convenient tool of censorship if it means they can go after CRT, and we filed lawsuits when that's the case. But on the left, you're seeing uh, justifications for censorship that words are violence, which is not true. It's what we use in place of violence, but when Ann Coulter was shouted down uh, just a month or two ago at Cornell, alma mater where she spoke three previous times students stood up shouted her down and said we don't want you here your words are violence that's a direct quote Uh, and you're seeing that increasingly among the left and in certain cases they're actually using violence right if you believe words are violence then logic would suggest that you could meet those words with actual physical violence that's what we saw at penn state when gavin mcginnis and a comedian were set to speak there That's what we saw at Berkeley uh, when Miley Yiannopoulos was set to speak there in 2017 and and Charles Murray at Middlebury in 2017. We saw just recently at UC Davis in uh, California uh, students, that we believe they're students, we're not sure, they were black clad, run into a screening of uh, What is a Woman? It's a documentary about gender ideology and threw manure uh, into the room uh, before running off. Uh, People tried to chase them down and then they got sprayed with pepper spray. Um, so, you know, that's what we're dealing with on, on campus. Um, it's suboptimal. Yes, it's suboptimal. So we, <laughs> need, we need people from across the political and ideological spectrum who are principled to this issue. And the problem is, when you're principled and you're willing to defend the rights of your enemies, you often don't hew to a, polit- a particular political ideology. So it's harder to identify and mobilize these folks. We know they exist in every ideology or political bent, as Greg was talking about, but that's what a big part of our expansion is, as Alicia was talking about, and that's why our acquisition budget is so large. We need to go out, identify these people, get them in the door, have them subscribe to our email list, feed them the sort of content that would demonstrate what a principled defense of free speech is, hopefully uh, convert them into a donor, and then mobilize them to take action when places like PayPal are fining their users $2,500 for spreading quote-unquote misinformation or supporting Netflix when they stand up for Dave Chappelle's special or supporting Elon Musk in an effort to uh, make Twitter a a more free platform or, you know, criticizing Elon Musk when he doesn't do that. So, you know, that's the effort that's at hand here. um, And that's kind of my call for mobilization as we head into 2023. Be a principled defender of free expression.
0: Lots and lots of additional information is available on your website at thefire.org. And people can read all about the change, the campaign, uh, how to get involved, how to be part of this million person army to advance free speech. And uh, I am thrilled that you guys are taking up this mantle, charging hard ahead. Uh, Greg, Alicia, Nico, really glad you were able to talk to us about this today. Thanks so much. Thanks
1: for having us. Thanks,
3: Peter.
0: Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Did you think of Fire's new expansion? I suppose if you knew of Fire's important work on campus already, it seemed like a pretty big deal. And if you didn't know about Fire before listening to this episode, then I hope you came away a bit more optimistic about the ongoing fight for free speech. Fire is doing important work, but as we heard, there are plenty of groups promoting and defending free speech. Alicia mentioned the Alumni Free Speech Alliance along with the many groups it has helped to seed at various colleges. There's Institute for Justice, Pacific Legal Foundation, Speech First, and any number of great public interest law groups. Mercatus Center, Cato Institute, and Reason Foundation have also long been advocates of free speech. Plus, on campus, you have groups like those we've heard of on this podcast back in August, Turning Point USA, Students for Liberty, Young Americans for Liberty, and there are so many others out there in this important fight. Whether with FIRE or with any of these groups, I encourage you to be part of the army of those using your free speech to protect free speech. Perhaps even speech we don't agree with. And one important aspect of free speech, your philanthropy. You have the freedom to put those dollars behind what matters most to you. Thank you for supporting the many causes that you do give to. And we at Donors Trust, of course, would always be happy to be a help to you in those efforts. Email me at tellmemore at donorstrust.org if you'd like to chat about how we could be a partner in your philanthropy. This marks the last episode of 2022, but we have so many exciting topics to explore in the new year. Subscribe to Giving Ventures so you don't miss an episode. And until then, thank you for being a giver, and let's talk more soon.